As we come into the presence of God, just like when we first meet someone, the most powerful moment is the one where we hear them speak. Hear now as God speaks from his word. Today's passage is Revelation 11, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. This is the word of the Lord. All right. It is good to see you all. And a sign that I just got back is I'm actually not sure if there is worship kid style or not. And I'm looking out in the audience for the people that would normally tell me, and I'm not seeing them. So, um... Yeah, Jordan, go find out, and, <laughs> and we will pray, and, um, and then I will tell you whether kids are dismissed to worship kids style or not. We got in Friday from spending a week and a half in Nebraska with family, which is good, and I thought I had checked every box so that I wouldn't have any of these, um, of the kind of hang-ups of getting back in the groove of it, but um, I, yeah, I will let you know in just a minute. Let's pray, though. God and Father, I give thanks to you that we have the opportunity to gather together and worship you, Lord, to hear you speak to us from your word, to join together in singing your praises. You are 
good to us in so many ways. And I pray now that you would be applying that word to our hearts as we sit under it to all of us and that you would be with me even though I am a sinner as I preach it. pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, I'm still looking out there and, um, and Jordan's having a conversation with somebody. But, <laughs> but let's go ahead and start talking. Um, before we look at this text, I just want to make a general observation that then we're going to come back to in a few minutes. And that general observation is that we live in this deeply and kind of absurdly anxious age. I mean, we have the longest life expectancies of any human beings ever in history, right? Like by a long stretch. But we are constantly worried about, um, about our health. We are outrageously wealthy. I, um, we do not have worship kids style. Um, we are outrageously wealthy. And the, I, would, the, I came across this fact over the holidays. This one was talking about holidays, but according to someone who studies it, they estimate that for up until the year 1800, between 90 and 95 percent of all the meals eaten on the earth were vegetarian, not out of some conviction about vegetarianism, but simply because meat was so expensive that for most people, most of the time, you could never afford to eat meat. And, you know, now we, like, go to McDonald's for, like, $2. You can get a McDouble, right? I mean, and, um, and we're so safe in our world, too. Like, murdering and kidnapping and all that stuff that we worry about, like, the, those rates are lower than they ever have been in the history of the United States, but we constantly live in fear of those things. We, as a culture, are addicted to anxiety. And we, as a church, oftentimes buy into that same kind of anxiety. I notice that a lot as Christians, we worry, in addition to all the stuff we just listed, we also worry about um, our kids and the state of the church and the future of Christianity in America and politics and all these different things connected to our faith that we feel really anxious about. And I want to name them because I think that this section of the book of Revelation actually is in many ways for me a balm to some of those anxieties and speaks a helpful message to our fears. But before we get to that, file that away, we need to talk a little bit. First of all, um, if you're visiting with us or relatively new with us, we are just getting back into the book of Revelation. We took a break for Advent to preach on other things, and we had been preaching through it before that. And if you're jumping in in the middle first, uh, let me just say a word or two to help you get situated and to remind the rest of us. Back in Revelation 1, when we did our first sermon in this series, we said that John uses three words to describe the book of Revelation, and they help us understand what it is. Three words, that it's an apocalypse, which is a word that means an unveiling or revealing. It doesn't mean everything gets destroyed. It means to reveal an apocalypse, a prophecy, and a letter. And we said that those are helpful to us because they each teach us something about the book. An apocalypse means that this book is supposed to be teaching us about the hidden realities behind the world as we experience it. The image we've used is of the Wizard of Oz in reverse, where in the Wizard of Oz, right, you've got Oz the Great and Terrible, and then you pull back the curtain and you realize that behind it is just this ordinary, everyday dude. And in an apocalypse like Revelation, what's happening is it's taking this ordinary, everyday world and pulling back the curtain to show us Oz the Great and Terrible behind it, to show what's going on. And then it's a prophecy. Prophecies in Scripture are not primarily about predicting the future, but they're rather about declaring the Word of God. 
They're mainly about forth-telling, not foretelling, we said. And in particular, one of the things about Revelation that that strikes us as is the way that it's full of symbolism and imagery. It's this sort of picture that's painted for us of the Word of God. And it's painted particularly with the language and imagery of the Old Testament. So we said that we should be paying attention to that Old Testament background. And last, we said it's a letter, which means that it is something that Christians should always be seeking to apply to their lives. In particular, the book of Revelation is not mainly some code we're supposed to decode about the future, figuring out some newspaper headlines somewhere, you know, decades or centuries from now. Rather, it is a letter addressed to us and to these churches that John is writing to. And so what we should be looking for in it is things we can apply to our lives. So that's what we said about the book of Revelation. And then also catching you up, because we've been on break, um, the last few chapters of Revelation, in chapters 8 and 9, we had the sort of trumpets of God's judgment being blown over the earth. There are seven trumpets, and six of them are blown. But then in chapter 10, we get this sort of break before the seventh trumpet. And in chapter 10, we see these other visions that basically boil down to John saying, all right, that judgment is coming, but wait, there's something else that has to happen as well. And that's that the good news of God's salvation is coming to the nations. And then we pick up in Revelation 11, and what we're really doing is jumping in at that point and saying, okay, we have this hope of God's salvation, now let's learn about it. And I'm going to tell you now that what we're going to learn from Revelation 11 is two things about it. One is that salvation comes to the world through our suffering witness. Salvation comes through our suffering witness. And second, that salvation comes by the power of God. It comes by the power of God. We're going to talk about those two things, but first a little bit more work, because again, the book of Revelation is hard, and this is a hard text. Before we can make those points and apply them, we need to talk about a couple of the symbols in this chapter and what it means. And so briefly, which if you're the kind of person that is into this sort of thing, you will scoff at doing this briefly, we're going to talk about, in this text, the temple, the 42 months, and the two witnesses, and what they mean. And then we'll apply it, all right? First of all, the temple. So if you pick up in verse 1, John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court inside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. So John is given this vision of the temple and told to measure it with a measuring rod. The measuring thing happens a lot in Old Testament prophets. And since there's no actual measurements given, that usually just means he's saying like, hey, look at this, you know, pay attention to this. But um, but we need to talk about what the temple means, because there's basically two ways to interpret this, okay? One of the ways that some people interpret this passage is about the future. And you're going to notice a pattern as we go through each of these symbols. They think that this passage is about how in Jerusalem at some point in the future, the temple in Jerusalem has to get rebuilt before Jesus can come back. I do not think that that is what this passage is about for two reasons. One is that that whole approach to the book of Revelation and the end times tends to fall into this problem where it denies that Jesus can come back tomorrow. Um, People don't kind of acknowledge that, but a lot of that, like, here's the list of things that has to happen before Jesus comes back, actually means that he can't come back tomorrow. And scripture is very clear that our attitude should be that Jesus can come back at any point, that he could come back this afternoon for all we know. 
But also in the book of Revelation, that idea doesn't fit. Because in the book of Revelation, the temple gets mentioned a number of other times. The image of the temple pops up. And in Revelation, it's never the physical temple in Jerusalem. Instead, there's two other temples that you see in the book of Revelation. One is God's heavenly temple, the picture of God's throne room in heaven. So, for example, at the end of this chapter, which we'll talk about next week, it says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. John is picturing there, like in Revelation 4 and 5, that's the image you're getting of sort of the heavenly temple where God dwells. And then the other temple in Revelation is the church. So, for example, back in chapter 3, we read this. John says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. So Jesus promises to make the members of this church pillars in the temple of God. And when we're talking about a temple that has human beings as pillars, right, that's, that's not how that, the temple in Jerusalem worked. Like, that's an image of the church. And in fact, throughout the New Testament, it's very common for us to be pictured as God's temple. For example, 1 Peter 2 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So given that, and given those kind of wider concerns, I think that, um, that it makes the most sense to say that in Revelation, if John usually uses the temple, in every other case, to mean either God's heavenly temple or the church— Probably when he gets the vision of the temple here in 11, that's what it is too. Um, and of those two, I think it mo- makes the most sense to see it as the church, because this is pictured sort of on earth, and we are right now God's temple on earth. Okay, there's one of three symbols. Second one, the 42 months, or 1,260 days, or three and a half years. Um, we get that mentioned a couple times in our reading, and it's going to be mentioned a number more times in the book of Revelation, and so we need to talk about that. And first of all, to understand that, you need to know that is an Old Testament image. It comes from the book of Daniel. I'd love to just put a verse from Daniel up on the screen and be like, here, let's read that and it makes sense. But it's really confusing in Daniel, too. All right? <laughs> There's a lot of debate about what it means. But, um, but we do know that in the book of Daniel, it seems to actually refer to a historical event. Um, so Jews understood Daniel's vision of this three and a half years of persecution of God's people as being fulfilled in the year 168 B.C. And here's your fun history lesson. There is this dude named Antiochus Epiphanes. There's this Greek dude. Awesome name. He's a terrible guy, but that's a great name. But he he took over Jerusalem, and for three and a half years, he set up idols in the temple courts and defaced the temple. And the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which we wouldn't view as scripture, but are, you know, historical kind of recountings of those times, they tell about the Jewish kind of persecutions— But for three and a half years, for 42 months, he desecrated the temple and controlled Jerusalem, and then he was overthrown. And so that seems to be what Daniel's talking about originally in the book of Daniel. Then Jesus, though, he uses that same imagery of 42 months to talk about another historical event. So another little history lesson. In the year 66 AD, which is 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, um, Israel rebelled against the Roman Empire, and the Roman armies marched out, And um, basically, after a period of warfare lasting three and a half years, um, the Jerusalem was conquered and the temple was leveled to the ground. And Jesus in Matthew 24 seems to be talking about that using the same imagery. He's like, you know, there's this three and a half year time, which is that. Um, And Jesus also interestingly uses it to talk about other time periods. For example, in Luke 4, 
he talks about the drought um, during Elijah the prophet's time, and as this 42 months, this three and a half years. And that doesn't clear up what's going on in Revelation, but the thing to recognize about that is that that's sort of the background to John's language, all right? So then what does that mean? What's this 42 months here? Again, there's two ways to interpret it generally. One is to view it as a specific future 42-month period of tribulation. Um, that view tends to be the view of people who also, you know, hold the future view in the first case. Um, and again, I think there's two issues with that. One is that, um, as we said, it already seems to refer to multiple events throughout Scripture, and so there's nothing that really drives you to hold that it's a future single event. But secondly, because even within the book of Revelation, that doesn't seem to fit. Again, if you look at Revelation 12, and I know we're skipping ahead. We're going to talk about this in two weeks. But there's this vision of this pregnant woman who gives birth to this child and this dragon that tries to kill the child. Um, let me start in verse 5. It says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Right? So you have this woman gives birth, and then the child is caught up to God. The woman sheltered for 42 months. And then if you go on and read there during that time, the dragon goes and makes war against her other children. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. And this is spoilers, but that's about Jesus. All right? that, you know, that is about the birth of Jesus and the attempts by Satan to defeat him, and then his resurrection and ascension into heaven. And the thing to notice there is that that 1,260 days starts right after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. Um, which means that in John's scheme, we, it seems, are in the 42 months, or it's something that's already there. And so that's what I think is a better interpretation, which is to say that that picture of that 42 months of tribulation is, in a sense, a picture of our age. Or more particularly, it's a picture of our age through the lens of the ways that the church is often persecuted, suffers opposition from the world. It focuses us on that reality. It's, it's in essence saying, look, all that stuff we just named about like the drought in Israel and Antiochus Epiphanes and the destruction of Jerusalem, these periods of persecution, we're supposed to recognize in those a reality that's just more generally true of our age, that we will suffer, um, including suffering persecution as Christians. All right. One more. I know some of you guys are loving this, and some of you are like, let's get to the application. And so for those who are loving it, one more, and then we'll get to the application. And for those of you who are ready for that, just hold on a little bit longer. But the two witnesses, all right? We have these two witnesses. Who are they? And again, this probably won't surprise you, but there's basically two ways to interpret them. <laughs> one of which is to view them as two specific individuals at some point in the future. Some people take this as like two specific individuals who literally do all of this stuff here, like breathe fire. Um, a lot of people, they still think that's all symbolic, but they would take it as f some future people. In fact, looking around online, there are people who, who argue that like Billy Graham was one of these two witnesses, for example. Um, and, but it's two specific individuals in the future. And the other interpretation, which I think is right, is that they don't stand for individuals but that they stand for the church as it bears witness to God. Um, that's an image of the church bearing witness to God. And again, let me give you a couple reasons for that. One, in verse 4, it says that they are two lampstands. Two lampstands. And if you go back 
to Revelation 1 or Revelation 4 or any of the other places in Revelation where there's lampstands, they always mean the church. We're told in the book that lampstands stand for the church. Second, they're portrayed using the imagery of um, the Old Testament prophets. It's common for Jewish people to speak of sort of the two great prophets, Moses and Elijah. The transfiguration of Jesus, Moses and Elijah come down to meet with him. Um, and when we read in verse 6 where it says they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days that they're prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire, that's the imagery of Elijah and Moses. Elijah shuts up the heavens and there's this drought um, for three and a half years, and Moses um, calls down these plagues and brings judgment on God's people. And so... These two witnesses probably are supposed to symbolize those two prophets. And in addition, there's probably two of them because the Bible regularly talks about how a testimony should be established by two witnesses. Here's the command from Deuteronomy. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So you need two witnesses to know that a testimony is true. And so, given all of that, I think that's supposed to represent, again, the church as it bears witness to God in this age. All right. So those of you that love that part of the sermon, we're done now. And those of you who want to talk about what does that mean for my life, let's dive into that. All right? When we look at that, this story, and we understand what's going on with that symbolism, there's two things it teaches us about how we live in the world. First, it teaches us that salvation comes to the world through our suffering witness. Salvation comes through our suffering witness. There's two halves of that. First, just the idea of witness. In verse 3, we see God says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So let's talk about the idea of a witness. We use that word a lot sometimes as Christians, you know, like I'm witnessing, we made it into a verb, which no one else really does. What does it mean? I mean, at its most basic level, a witness is just someone who has seen or found out something that's true, who then tells other people about this thing that they've seen or discovered. And in scripture, it's saying something has happened in Jesus, something remarkable in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, salvation has come to the earth. And that thing we have seen, we have experienced, we have found out, and so then we're called to bear witness to it. Our calling as the church, in large part in the world, is to do that. To see and experience what Jesus has done, and then to bear witness. And when we think about that idea of witnessing, it's important to say that includes two layers, like two connected layers, and you've got to have both of them. One layer of that is we're supposed to bear witness to Jesus in our lives. That the way we live is supposed to reflect the reality that Jesus has come and died and risen again. And so the idea is, for example, in our individual lives, that people should see us loving our neighbor in sacrificial ways. They should see us seeking to follow Jesus, and they should say, huh, like something seems to have happened there, right? Like there's some evidence of Jesus there. In our life together as the church, people should see our unity and the way that we love each other and forgive each other and put up with each other despite our differences. And they should say, huh, like, maybe something happened with Jesus. Like, that's you know, seems to give some evidence of this thing about Jesus. 
Um, the way we serve others should help them believe that Jesus laid their life down for us. Our lives should bear witness to Jesus. And then also, well, actually, first, let me just say about that. That's true. That does not mean you have to be perfect. I think one of the things that happens sometimes when we say that is that people are like, oh, man, like, if I'm not perfect, then my life isn't bearing witness to Jesus. And that's not the point. In fact, the way you deal with your sin by confessing your sin and acknowledging and, you know, humbly kind of owning it, that's actually a part of bearing witness, too. Uh, it's not that you're perfect, but it is that you see that transformed life, right? So that, our lives, and then also our words in Scripture. We are called to bear witness to the work of Jesus by sharing with our words the good news of Jesus. And that can look different for different people, right? You don't all have to, like, go stand up on street corners and preach or whatever. But we are called to use our words also to explain that Jesus died and rose again, and we have salvation in that. And the thing you've got to recognize is you've got to have both of those layers for the thing to work. You can't cut out either one. If you cut out the life layer, right, then nobody's going to listen to you <laughs> because you're going to sound like a hypocrite, right? You know, you've got to be reflecting the gospel in your life. But if you cut out the words layer, what happens is people are just like, huh, like, that is a really nice person. I wonder why that is. <laughs> And they're never given the answer, right? So you need to—we're called to bear witness in both of those ways. So we bear witness, but particularly here in Revelation 11, it's suffering witness that John sees as powerful. In verse 3 again, God gives his authority to his two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Remember, we already said that 42 months, that 1,260 days, that's a picture of tribulation and suffering of God's people. And we're prophesying in the midst of that, dressed in sackcloth, which is the clothes of mourning and grief. The witnesses find their ministry opposed in verse 7. It says, when they have finished their testimony, so they do successfully bear witness, but when they finished that, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. So the beast, which um, it, it basically represents Satan. It happened earlier. We'll talk more about that actually in the next few chapters. But Satan and the powers that are allied with him make war against these witnesses. And ultimately they're killed, and they're killed in a shameful way. Their bodies are just left to rot on the street. And we get the shame even more in the next verses. Picking up in 9, For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So it looks to an outside observer like they're killed and Satan's won, and they're defeated. In fact, they have a holiday, right? They're like, here, here's, you know, presents for our killing of the witness. But of course, they don't stay dead, and we'll talk about that in a minute. However, what's important to recognize is that John is saying that the sort of witness that we are called to bear is a sort of witness that expects that at times to be true. A sort of witness that recognizes that there is a real possibility of suffering, persecution, and even death, and humiliation. That is where I want to return to that anxiety that I talked about for Americans. And especially talk about some of those anxieties as American Christians that I hear people express. 
we often feel worried about the church and about the future, especially in the United States. Why do we feel worried? Well, I think if I could sum up the main reason for a lot of us, it's that we feel like the culture around us is becoming more hostile to Christianity. We feel like people are less open to Christianity, like we will face more opposition, like it's just harder. We feel like there was a time when someone would hear you're a committed Christian and be like, oh, like I really admire that, even if they didn't agree with you. Whereas now, when they hear that, they're more likely to look at you strangely. And that makes us worried because we think that if the environment of the world is more hostile to Christianity, then that means that the church is not going to be able to grow and be the church. We think if the environment is hostile to Christianity, then that means that the church cannot grow and be the church. That's what we think. Now first, two things that are kind of true about that. One, I kind of agree that the environment in America is more hostile to Christianity than it once was. Now I always want to be careful because part of the problem is there's like these fear mongers and like things that circulate on Facebook that way overstate that reality, right? That's, that's like, you know, like, basically, next year you're all going to get locked up and your kids are going to get, like, tortured because they're Christians. And that is not what I mean when I say that things are becoming more hostile, right? Don't buy into that fearfulness. But it is probably true that we live in a time and place where it is um, harder to be a Christian. And, um, yeah, our current culture is less kind of friendly to Christianity. And in addition, it is true that a certain kind of church is going to struggle to grow in that kind of environment. Um, There is a type of church that existed very often, I think, in our country that was sort of just a way for you to be socially respectable or kind of this country club where you could hang out with some friends and enjoy their company. And um, those kinds of churches are already dying, frankly, in America, and probably will continue to die in the face of increasing cultural hostility. Not that, like, there isn't a good connectedness. Don't hear, you know, like, there's a good, like, social connectedness and stuff in church. But if that's all it is, it's just a chance to kind of, like, go be respectable and hang out with other respectable people. As the culture becomes hostile, those kinds of churches will die. But the true church, the church that is bearing witness to Jesus and comes with the authority of God in that proclamation— The good news about that is that a hostile environment cannot hurt that church because it is designed to exist in that kind of environment. It is designed to exist in that kind of environment. What this picture in Revelation is meant to remind us is that, like, the native soil for Jesus' church is hostile soil. The native environment for the gospel is one where it is facing opposition. Jesus promises that if we are faithful to him, we may well suffer persecution just like he does. The book of Acts is full of stories about the church facing persecution and suffering and mockery and opposition. These witnesses face suffering and persecution and mockery and even martyrdom, but the point is that that doesn't actually stop their witness, that that is our expectation. Just think about this. If you meet some when you, when you meet a kind of, like, American who says, I'm a Christian, and I really believe and follow Jesus. I mean, that's encouraging to me, but I'm not very, like, impressed by that, right? You know, I mean, because I'm like, okay. But when you meet, like, someone in the Middle East or China who, you know, who is, like, a Christian, right? And it says, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and I'm following him. 
that has a power to it, right? I look at that and I'm like, wow, like, maybe, maybe this Jesus thing is true. And the reason is because that person is suffering, right? The, the hardship, the opposition they face actually makes the gospel that they proclaim more powerful. Now, that does not mean that we should celebrate suffering. It doesn't mean that we should be like, you know, oh, yeah, so persecution, great. Like, I am, I am glad to be a pastor in the United States. I am grateful for the fact that, um, that I do not expect the police to come bursting through the door, <laughs> you know, in a minute or two and, and take us off to jail. Like, that is a blessing, but it is not necessary for the gospel of Jesus to succeed or the church to be a church. And that is actually a huge help to our anxiety. Because rather than trying to deny the anxiety, rather than trying to say, oh, things aren't that bad, you can just say, like, I mean, maybe. Like, you know, maybe the the culture is becoming really hostile to Christianity. That doesn't matter, because the church is designed to bear witness and grow even in such an environment. So that's true. That's the first thing. But if that's all we say about our anxiety, that's—I know that's, like, the pessimistic side of the answer, Right? So let's see the other thing that this text teaches us, which is that salvation comes by the power of God. It comes by the power of God. So we left our witnesses laying dead in the street. People are exchanging presents, you know, celebrating their death. But then verse 11, after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Remember, these witnesses stand in for the, the witness of the church And what John says is that Satan kills them, but God then brings them back to life. That is um, a story in many ways of the church's witness throughout the ages. Over and over we see the gospel advance in the face of adversity, and oftentimes those seasons where it seems like it is most in defeat, where things seem the darkest, are the seasons just before the light dawns, and suddenly there's great life and revitalization. Not always, I don't want to oversell that, but often that's the case. And the reason for that is the powerful working of God. This is supposed to be an image of Jesus, right? Jesus slain by the world and lying in shame and humiliation. And then God breathing life into Jesus and him rising again. That story that's true in Jesus is exactly the same story that's then true in these witnesses. The mission of these witnesses is carried forward in the power of God. In fact, everything we read up to this point should have highlighted that too. John says they have the authority of God, right? When they're breathing out fire, when they're shutting up the heavens, all of that is meant to be saying, like, God's power is at work in their ministry. The world cannot stop them. Even death cannot stop them in that mission. And then in verse 12, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. So God is powerfully protecting the church as well. That's calling back to Revelation 5, where we see the souls of the saints that were slain under the altar of God, in his presence, resting with him. Death cannot stop the mission of the church. Death also cannot truly hurt us as the church bearing witness. It can't hurt us. I mean, at worst, right, the world can kill Christians. And one of the remarkable things about Christianity is that that is only a triumph in Jesus Christ. We have nothing to fear. Then verse 13. At that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Earthquakes in Revelation are symbols of God's second coming and judgment. We've talked about it before. And next week, when we pick up 
in, um, starting in verse 15, we're going to see that, you know, that this is the, another point in the vision where we see a picture of God returning to earth. But that is to say that God is at work right now through our witness, and he's protecting us as we bear witness, and also God is the one who will come in the end to bring that work to completion. We are guaranteed God's victory. His kingdom will come. And so that, then, that reality of God's power, which lies behind our work and protects us as we carry it forward and guarantees that it will be brought to completion, that power of God is the other answer to our anxiety. What's the opposite of fear? Have you ever, like, what's the opposite of anxiety? Right? What's the opposite feeling or opposite thing? In Scripture, interestingly, whenever you see it put in opposition to something, the thing it's put in opposition to is faith. So, for example, in Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Or Deuteronomy 21, as God is talking to Joshua, he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of those people, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. The opposite of fear is trusting in God. The foundation of our faith, that trust, is that God is powerful. We trust God because he is good and trustworthy and because he is powerful and can bring his promises to completion. That's actually maybe the thing that worries me the most when I hear us express our anxieties about the moment that we live in in the United States, right? Is that you hear people worrying about all of these things about, you know, cultural shifts and current events and, you know, the, the elites and all of this stuff. And, um, and I understand that, but part of me also just always wants to say, like, guys, like, we know how this thing goes. We know the story we're in. We know who is in control of this thing in the end, and it's God. And there's a way of talking and worrying about those things that really takes our eyes off of that deeper truth. I mean, here's what we know. We know as Christians that we will suffer in this age, and the church will face opposition from the world. And we know that the world will not defeat the church, that it will continue, and the gospel will advance, and the kingdom will be built up. And we know, even in our own lives, that God will carry us and protect us as we walk with him until the day that we die. And we know that Jesus will return, and evil will finally be defeated, and all will be made right. None of that stuff is in question, right? And yeah, I do not know the details underneath of that thing. I do not know whether in this moment in America, you know, persecution might not increase to some extent, or we might not lose certain privileges, or I might not, like, get my clergy tax break or whatever. And I don't know, right, like, whether the people in the government are going to be friendly to, you know, biblically faithful Christianity. I don't, you know, I don't know whether maybe... I mean, maybe there will be a revival next year, right? Great revival starts to sweep through the land. Or maybe God will discipline us for our faithlessness and compromise. And, you know, the church will be small here. And in 100 years or 200 years, all those Christians in Africa and Latin America will come, you know, lead us back to Jesus. Like, I don't know the details of this thing. But I know the story within which those details have to fall. And that is a story where God's gospel goes forward and the church's witness is sustained. And we will be brought to the end when God makes all things new. That story, and recognizing that, and putting our lives within the context of that, is actually why I think the book of Revelation is so helpful. Instead of reading about these two witnesses and all this, you know, this stuff, and going to newspapers, what you get to do is take this picture and say, 
this, in a real sense, can be my story. It is my story that when I am bearing witness to Jesus in my life or with my words and I suffer opposition for it or it costs me something, like, that, you know, I am, I am actually joined in this story. This is what's going on. And because of that, that also means that just as our struggles can be united with that story, our hopes can be as well. That we can recognize that God's power is at work in us now. And we can recognize that even if we are defeated, even if we are slain, that God will breathe into us and give us new life again. And that allows us to live in the, the world in a way that is free of anxiety. Because we know that this vision is true for us. It can be the story that God writes about our lives. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we might be faithful witnesses to your love, that you might train and teach us in that. And Father, I pray that we might hope in you and your power that's at work in us. Give thanks that you are moving in history and give thanks that in the end that that story will flow into your return and the kingdom. Build our hearts up in that hope. Amen.